Well, good morning, everyone. You're all nice and toasty in here. It's cold outside. It's it's one of those days where we say to my wife, the sun mocks us. You know, it looks warm, but it's really cold out. So I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to John 14, the New Testament. Uh, If you need a Bible to use, you should find one down in one of the chair uh, racks around you. And I would encourage you to bring your Bibles with you on Sunday mornings. If you don't have one, let us know. We'll make sure you get one. But this morning, we're going to look at John 14. As you're turning there, let me just set the context for you. Uh, It was Thursday night, uh, just a few hours before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. He was uh, in an upper room, kind of a a secluded room in Jerusalem with his disciples. And he's talking to them about uh, his leaving them. And uh, as he's telling this, he offers this promise. Uh, In verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. And then down in verse 26, he says, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Uh, Before we go on, let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we're grateful for uh, the day that you have given us, the beauty of it, a reminder of your grace and your goodness. Um, We're grateful for the sunshine and the the way in which it uh, energizes us. And um, in the midst of the winter uh, speaks of hope of coming spring. And, uh, and so we celebrate this day together and we offer this time to you. I pray that you would help us to focus our attention in the next few minutes on what you have for us. And I pray that your spirit alone would reign in this place and, um, and teach us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you may know, and if you haven't heard, uh, you will now. Today we're starting a new series called um, uh, Wild Goose. Uh, it's going to be basically a theological overview of the Holy Spirit. And you're probably probably wondering what's up with the title, right? Wild Goose. Well, here's the deal. There are a lot of metaphors uh, in Scripture, Old and New Testament, used to depict the Holy Spirit. One of the most famous is that in the New Testament Gospels, that of a dove. Uh, but according to some historians, ancient Celtic Christians weren't all that familiar with doves. And so they adopted their own metaphor to represent the Spirit. They called him Angedglas, wild goose. Now, I realize we're not Celtic. I know I'm certainly not. And I, uh, I'm guessing that for most of us living in this, the burbs of Chicago today, given the number of our Canadian feathered friends roaming about our properties and, and parking lots, uh, the image of a goose may seem less than appealing, especially when portraying uh, God. Uh, but I chose to use the metaphor because, for one, I hoped it would pique your interest. Uh, but more importantly than that, at least for me, the metaphor uh, uniquely portrays the strength, the power the freedom, uh, the untamable unpredictability, as well as the amazing grace and majestic nature of God's Spirit. And besides, calling, calling the series pneumatology, which is a big theological word for spirit study, just seemed boring to me. So going with wild goose, okay? With that being the case, one of the things that I've noticed over uh, some 24 years of ministry is how as Christians we often, uh, we often drift toward extremes. You know what I mean? 
Um, for example, there are some churches that focus uh, a majority of their time and attention uh, on subjective spiritual experiences. Uh, on the other hand, there are some that do the opposite. They, they talk only about objective cognitive truth. In other words, it's either the intellectual side of things that gets emphasized or the experiential side of things that gets emphasized. But as I've told you before and I've pointed out before, Christianity is both objective and subjective. It's both rational and experiential. It is, it is spirit and truth together. And it seems to me that an accurate understanding of the Holy Spirit helps bring those realities into balance because think about it, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. In fact, Jesus' teaching here in John 14 provides some important insights um, to a few basic uh, sort of high-level questions uh, related to the Holy Spirit. I want to explore those, those questions with you this morning. First and foremost... Uh, who is the spirit of truth? Who is the Holy Spirit? Um, and the song we just sang referred to him as ghost, the Holy Ghost that comes from the middle, sort of the Middle Ages. It was the common word for spirit. But uh, who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, as I've already hinted at the answer, uh, Jesus uh, is actually quite clear about it. Uh, notice how after mentioning the spirit in verse 16, Jesus uses five personal pronouns in verse 17 to refer to the spirit as what? As him, 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 he, right? So according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is not, not some kind of divine influence or impersonal energy or magical force. The Holy Spirit is not an it or a thing. The Holy Spirit is a he, a him, a being, a, a person, Someone who can think and feel, remind, lead, convict, gift, desire. Uh, the Spirit can teach. The Spirit can be grieved. He can be lied to. He can be sinned against. He speaks. He guides. He loves. All the defining qualities of individual personhood uh, are applied to the Holy Spirit all throughout the Scriptures. Jesus is simply affirming the reality of His personhood. The Spirit isn't just a personal being. He is a personal being who is God. Check this out. In verse 16, Jesus says something very, very interesting. As he's talking to the disciples, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate or some translations say another helper, another comforter, another counselor. Whatever the case, in essence, Jesus is saying, I am one advocate, one helper, one comforter, one counselor, but the Father will give you another one. Now, the Greeks had two separate terms that they used for another. One was hetero, uh, meaning the opposite of or different from what's been listed. The second term was alos, uh, meaning the same as that which has been mentioned or listed. Well, Jesus uses the second term, alos. So here's my Reiki translation, okay? Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, alos, another advocate, another helper, another comforter, another counselor, just like the first i.e. just like me. Now, why is that important? Well, consider, uh, let's consider some of the outrageous claims that Jesus made about himself. Um, he claimed to be deity in the flesh, right? He claimed to um, have the, uh, the right to judge sin as well as forgive sin, the prerogatives of God alone. Jesus claimed to be eternal. You know, one day he was speaking to a crowd of people. He claimed to personally know Abraham, who had lived 2,000 years earlier. And when the religious experts who were there heard this, they, uh, they challenged him. And they said, what, what are you saying? Who do you think you are? You're, you're not even 50 years old. And Jesus said to them, here's the truth. Listen to this. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am was the name God revealed to Moses. 
you know, given to himself, the idea of the everlasting, uh, all-powerful creator, self-existing creator. And so the experts, they kind of freaked out about it, they, and they wanted to stone him right there and then. They wanted to kill him for, for blasphemy because it was no secret. Everybody knew what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be God eternal. So along with all that, here we have Jesus, uh, again, in the upper room, just hours before his arrest and crucifixion, sitting with the disciples, uh, telling them that, uh, the, that God the Father will send someone just like him, Allah, the same as him, i.e. Jesus identifies the coming Holy Spirit as a personal being who is also God. And throughout the scriptures, uh, the Spirit um, exhibits the, the attributes of divinity, the omnis, if you will, uh, omniscience, all-knowing, omnipotence, all-powerful, omnipresence, all-time, everywhere, eternal. And so the reality of that brings us to the, the rather perplexing and dizzying doctrine of the Trinity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all being represented here in this, in this one text. And um, at the risk of getting bogged down, let me just quickly review for you everything that Jesus says in this chapter, because we didn't read the whole thing. But uh, first, Jesus explains to the disciples that he was going away. In verse 1, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He says, I'm going away. In verse 16, he says, the Father will send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to live with you and be in you forever. Then in verse 20, Jesus says, on that day, you'll realize that I am in the Father and I am in you. Then in verse 21, when talking about all those who would follow him and love him, Jesus says, my Father will love them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. Are you guys tracking with this so far? Jesus says, I'm leaving you. The Holy Spirit is coming to you. He will be in you. I am in you. I am in the Father. My Father and I will come and be in you as well. In other words, Jesus represents himself as so one with the Father and the Spirit that when the Spirit comes into your life as a believer, Jesus comes into your life and the Father comes into your life. And yet Jesus is not so identical to the Father and to the Spirit that he can't return to the Father in heaven while the Spirit comes into the lives of the, his followers on earth. Metaphysicist and Christian philosopher Dr. Alvin Plantinga puts it this way. He says, The relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit is not some miscellaneous collection of distinct persons who just happen to share some generic uh, divine essence, some godness, so they can be classed together. Rather, they mutually, inseparably share in the life of one another in a remarkable way, a life without isolation, insulation, secrecy, or fear. They enjoy a penetrating, transparent, mutual knowledge of the other as other, as co-other, and as loved other. Now, that clears things up for you, doesn't it? <laughs> it's easy, right? It's easy for you. You're sitting down because when I start thinking about this, I get dizzy, you know? So uh, here's the thing. Uh, um, a lot of brilliant men and women over the centuries have studied, written about, talked about, lectured on, attempted to sort of unravel and describe the nature of the divine trinity. People way smarter and more educated than me. But at the moment, I'm all you got. So <laughs> as a flawed, imperfect, finite human being, here's the best way I know how to articulate this. Here in John 14, Jesus was saying that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are not three separate gods. They are two one in nature to be three. Yet God is not one person in three forms because he is two three for that. So we're talking about one God, one nature, one God in three persons. Jesus taught it, and the scriptures reveal it throughout. The Trinity. And, uh, you know, we often try to illustrate uh, the, the truth of it with, 
with things that we know around us, water or an egg. But all of those illustrations ultimately fall short because, because God is unlike anything we know in this world. And, you know, this is, this is just another one of those truth claims that sets Christianity apart from other religions. I mean, if you were, if you were making up a, a religion, if you were trying to uh, develop a doctrine of God, would you ever think of this Trinity thing? Probably not, which is why all other religions teach nothing close to it. They either propose a works-oriented non-personal mysticism or a works-oriented polytheism, many gods who are very different, or they propose a works-oriented unipersonal monotheism. Christianity does none of those things. It's completely unique. It proposes a grace-oriented triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, personally and eternally existing in a divine dynamic of love, unity, and diversity. Can I explain that to you? Not really. And, uh, and here's the deal. If, if I could fully explain God to you or even suggest that I could, He'd simply be a God of my own making, a God of my own imagination. For God to be truly God, there must there must remain some degree of otherness to him. You know what I'm saying? Some mystery in him that we can't fully grasp as human beings. In fact, the Trinity isn't the only uh, mystery represented in the text. The, I mean, the whole idea of God indwelling his people, uh, you indwelling you indwelling me, is, 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 is weird. I mean, how does that work? Jesus said, you know, as his followers, he said to those of you who love him and and put your faith in him, that the Holy Spirit will come and live with you and be in you. And again, we're not talking about, we're not talking about some personal magical force exerted on you or an impersonal energy surrounding you. The spirit, it's, we're talking about the spirit of God coming and indwelling you, becoming personally, intimately connected uh, with you in sort of this mingling community of mind, heart, body forever. But where exactly does the Spirit dwell in you? Is he in your brain? Is he in your heart? Behind your liver? Chilling near your pancreas? I mean, wh- where is he? And, I, you know, I ask that not just to be, I'm not trying to be a wise guy, but I'm saying let's think through this because we talk about it so freely. But how does it work? And I don't, I don't think that we, we can ever fully comprehend uh, how the spiritual realm works because our idea of space and time is just, is so limited by our finite humanness but what we do know is that Jesus promises when you put your faith in him that the spirit of god will come and indwell you and when that happens when that happens he begins to transform you from the inside out and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as the series goes on but for now uh, in regard to just this particular text here's a second high-level question. The first is, who is the Holy Spirit? But the second is, you know, what exactly does the Spirit do? And there are two words that, uh, in the text that offers some insight. The first is the word truth. In verse 17, Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth, point being, that after Jesus' departure, that the Holy Spirit would come, indwell, uh, and, and continue to reveal and communicate truth to his followers. In verse 25, Jesus says that the Spirit would would what? Would teach them and remind them of everything he had said. And so the idea of truth carries an informational, propositional, intellectual component, while at the same time, the idea of truth carries an experiential component. In other words, the Holy Spirit actually comes and indwells you and reveals truth to us. 
truth that in turn has has a practical impact on our lives. And I think that's what Jesus was getting at when he said, he said, you know, you will know the truth and the truth will have an impact on your life. The truth will set you free. Think of it this way. Um, I can I can look at these glasses and I can say these are nice glasses. But until I put them on, my perception of the world, trust me on this, is blurred. My perception of you is blurred and a little distorted. The perception of reality is distorted. But, but once they, they become part of me, I see things clearly. I can interpret reality. I understand what's true around me. And that truth allows me and in, indeed inspires me to respond and interact with my world appropriately. In other words, the glasses bring both the informational uh, and experiential element of truth. Now, there are some Christians who think of their faith only in terms of facts, figures, information, cognitive knowledge. There are others who think of their faith uh, mostly in terms of feelings and subjective experiences. But when the spirit of truth comes to us, he brings both. He brings both knowledge and experience, truth and power. I like how the Apostle Paul stresses this idea when he wrote to Christians in the early church. He says, he says I kneel before the Father and I pray, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how wide, how long, and how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know, experientially know this love. He says that surpasses knowledge. It's more than just knowledge, see? And so the Spirit comes and reveals truth to us both propositionally and experientially. Uh, The other key word in the text to note is the word advocate. The Father will give you another advocate. Now the Greek term that's used here is one that's so rich in meaning scholars throughout the centuries have really struggled to translate it. There's not there's no one English word that does it full justice. And so uh, some uh, some translations may read, the Father will give you another helper, uh, which to me comes across kind of weak. Or the Father will give you another comforter, which is nice but sounds a bit quilt-like. Some read, the Father will give you another counselor. But what kind? Marriage counselor? Camp counselor? You know? And so the the Greek term is is very difficult to translate. Uh, The term itself is a term parakletos, or sometimes pronounced in the English paraclete, which is really a combination of two Greek terms, the term para, meaning alongside of, and kaleo, meaning to call or even to argue. And in the ancient Greco-Roman world, it was a legal term. A paraclete referred to a person who uh, was called alongside as an official legal representative to speak in the defense of somebody being accused of something. And so when Jesus refers to the Spirit as, as an advocate, what did he mean? Well, I think Jesus was saying that as a Christian, as one of his followers, the Holy Spirit comes to you, dwells in you, and loyally defends you against accusation, external or internal. For example, when you're feeling insecure and having doubts about God's love for you, the spirit of truth says, your father in heaven loves you. In Christ, he has adopted you into his family as a son, as a daughter, with all the rights and privileges and inheritances that that come along with that. And there's nothing, there's nothing that can separate you from him. Nothing, no one. Or when you sin, you know, you you willingly do something that you just know, you know that God says is, is wrong, it's hurtful, it's unhealthy in your life and in your relationships, and so you begin to worry that, well, you know, maybe God, maybe God won't forgive, won't forgive me. The Spirit of Truth says, hey, what you did was wrong, and it may carry some consequences, but you are forgiven. 
you are. Or when the adversary of God comes and whispers accusations in your ear trying to convince you that you're worthless and of no value to anyone, let alone the creator of the world, world, the spirit of truth reminds you of how the creator so loved and valued the world, including you, that he sent his son to die for you and to give you life. When you struggle with guilt and you fall back into, into that religious idea of having to be good enough and to work hard enough to prove yourself to God, the spirit of truth says, hey, our relationship is not about works. It's about grace. Your eternal rescue is not about what you do, but about what Jesus has done. Or when life gets hard, you know, and bad things happen and suffering enters our experience as it does for all of us at some point or another. And we're afraid and, and, and we, we're tempted to think that God has abandoned me. The spirit of truth says, no, 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 don't be afraid. It's a broken world, true, but no matter what happens in this broken world, your father will never leave you, never abandon you. He has greater things in your future for you. I like how the Apostle Paul summarizes it when he writes, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Which brings us uh, to our final question of the morning, and that is, how do we receive, uh, as Paul puts it, how do we receive and experience the benefits of the Spirit, this alos, this other or second advocate? And the answer is simple, by knowing and having faith in the first advocate. In fact, in his letter to the early church, it was the Apostle John who wrote and said, look, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And the picture that John paints in that letter is of Jesus standing before the throne of God in the courtroom of God in heaven as our advocate, you know, our our legal counsel, our defense attorney who represents us and speaks for us. However, however, he only defends those who by faith ask him to, see? And realistically, the only people who request him are those who recognize their their brokenness, their sinfulness, and and have such a deep sense of moral failure that they know they can't go before the holy God of this universe on their own. They need an advocate. And that, my friends, is the only true re- uh, requirement of eternal life. That we admit we can't go before God on our own merit. We need Jesus. Interestingly enough, other religions say, hey, you know, that's the trouble with you Christians. You know, that's your problem. You believe you've got to come to God through Jesus. We believe all good people everywhere can come to God. You're, you're, you're too exclusive. And I always push back on that because, look, if other religions say all good people get into heaven, but bad people are left out, where does that leave me? I'm not that good. And how good do you have to be? So in my opinion, saying only good people get into heaven is way more exclusive than saying everybody can get in if they just admit they're not good enough. See? So understand the difference. It's significant. While other religions suggest good people get into heaven, Christianity says humble people get into heaven. I.e., we confess that we have a problem. We're sinful. We're broken. We're imperfect. We're, we're rebellious. We have this problem, so we ask Jesus to be our solution. And as such, he becomes our advocate, our legal representative. What does he do? He speaks out on our behalf. You know, in a courtroom, that's the job of legal counsel, right? My defense attorney speaks for me, knows what to say, can make the case in a way that I can. He understands the law and what the law demands. There are times when I think we view Jesus as sort of standing before God the Father 
and kind of begging for clemency on our behalf, sort of whining about it. Please, Father, let you know, raise a knucklehead. You know, he sinned again. It's what he does. It's who he is. You know, and I'm just, I'm begging you to let him off the hook. Please, please, please show mercy. Maybe put him on probation for a while. Let's see what happens. You know, let's cut a deal. That is not how it works. Jesus, our advocate, doesn't stand before the throne of God begging for mercy. He's not trying to persuasively convince God to be lenient toward me or toward any of us. He's righteous, and therefore he is pleading for justice. He demands justice. The law of God requires judgment of sin with the penalty being death. But Jesus is a good lawyer with an open-shut case. Because as John points out, not only is Jesus our advocate, but he... He is also the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's my personal Ray case summary of that. Our legal representative paid the penalty for us. He lived the perfect life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die. He was punished in our place. Judgment was meted out against him, and therefore justice has been graciously served. And now our advocate, Jesus the righteous one, stands before the Father and demands justice i.e. He demands our freedom, which is granted. All that to say, in view of today's study, is if you know the first advocate, Jesus, then you will receive and experience the benefits of the second, the Holy Spirit, who will in turn always point you back to the first. Or as Jesus once put it, he said, when the advocate comes, the Spirit of truth, he will testify about me. You know, um, a very popular Christian author right now is a guy named Francis Chan, former pastor in California, and he's written a number of books. He is like the current Pez dispenser of Christian books. And um, one of his books uh, is this one. It's called The Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. That's the subtitle. Has anyone read it? A couple people seen it? Uh, I hear it's good. Uh, I haven't had a chance to get to it yet. I plan on reading it at some point because the title intrigues me the forgotten god and i i think there's some truth to that you know how uh, as we as christians we often talk about the father and the son but we have a tendency to at the very least overlook the spirit and yet as a as another very well-known christian author and thinker c.s lewis once pointed out the oversight is somewhat understandable in his classic book mere christianity lewis writes the third person of the three persons who are god is called in technical language the holy spirit of god do not be worried or surprised if you find him rather vaguer or more shadowy in your mind than the other two i think there's a reason why that must be so in the christian life you are not usually looking at him he's always acting through you if you think of the father as someone out there in front of you and the son as someone standing at your side then you have to think of the third person as someone inside and for me, what Lewis says makes a lot of sense, that there's, there's an understandable reason why we can overlook the Spirit. But here's the deal. I don't want us to overlook or neglect the Spirit, nor should we. Because all throughout the Scriptures, from the beginning of creation in Genesis 1 to the incarnation and birth of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, to the empowering of His church in the book of Acts, to the culmination of human history as described in Revelation 22, All throughout the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is portrayed as playing an active, critical role in this world and in our lives. Why? Because He is God and He is here. And therefore, He is worthy of our attention, our understanding, our gratitude, and our worship. As He points us back to Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful for the teaching of Jesus. Uh, for the scriptures that um, provide insight for us to who you are. 
And we acknowledge, God, that you are beyond our full comprehension. Thank you for revealing truth about yourself to us, demonstrating who you are in Jesus. Um, And I think uh, I speak for all of us when we say we want to know you more. We want to understand you. We want not just the, you know, sort of the rational truth about who you are, but we want the experiential element as well. We want to know you. We want to experience you. We're thankful for your spirit who, who comes to us and indwells us and teaches us and reminds us of what Jesus has taught. And, and we ask that you would pour out your spirit on us in a new and um, refreshing way. And so I, I ask God as we continue in this series in the weeks ahead that you would reveal more of yourself to us, that we might understand how your spirit is at work, not only in the world, but in our lives and even in, in our life as a church. And so we worship you this morning, our God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.